This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. The views expressed by guests on this program do not necessarily represent the views of the host or owners of the Doggy Diva Show and do not necessarily constitute endorsement of products. Medical information discussed by guests on this program are those of the guests and is only for informational purposes and should not replace medical advice by your local veterinarian professional. Hi, this is Susan Marie. Coming up this week on the Doggy Diva Show, how to dress your pet safely for Halloween. Also, what rescue dogs can really teach us about ourselves. That's what's on our show this week. Let's get started. Hey, did you hear that? What is that? It's the bark heard round the world. The Doggy Diva Show. Here's Susan Marie. Hi, welcome to the Doggy Diva Show, the show for animal lovers. I'm your host, Susan Marie, and as always, I'm joined by my canine co-hosts, the Doggy Divas themselves, Francesca, Coco, and our newest little diva, Miss Olive. Miss Olive is the cute little Italian greyhound rescue in the picture with the microphone. Thank you for joining us today as we bring the experts in the pet and animal world right to you. So go grab a cup of coffee and your pet's favorite treat, and we'll be back in just a moment. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Monica, Halloween, it's coming up Halloween. That's one of my favorite days of the year. We get to dress up. I mean, I get to dress up my pets logistically. They say, oh, great, your pet's dressed up. But I do it every week. You are going to tell us how to get pets maybe that don't like to dress up, maybe safe ways to dress our pets up for Halloween. Yes, not all of our pets enjoy being dressed up. Some of them, you know, it's just a foreign thing. It doesn't happen all the time. Um, and the main thing, you know, is just having safety when you do go to the events or do try to dress up a pet. I always tell people, you know, try the costume on, let them wear it before they actually have to get them kind of used to it. And a lot of things can simply be, you know, something that attaches to the collar or a lot of times just a simple vest, not, you know, a full costume is something that just Velcros, you know, in the chest area, something very easy. And they've got a lot of lower key costumes that are still really cute. That is not a big deal. They have, you know, little, <laughs> my sister found one for her lab that is just a harness that, you know, it just goes on top of her harness, but it's got a little jockey guy on the top. So it looks like it's riding the horse, 
which is her lab because he's huge. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of things depending on how much your pet will tolerate. So do not think, you know, oh, my pet doesn't like wearing clothes. It's never going to happen. You know, you kind of get creative. And there's a lot of things that, you know, pets will tolerate. And like I said, it can be something that, you know, you add to a collar or you add to a harness. The main thing is to make sure it's comfortable. Um, one thing that I always tell people they have to be cautious of, especially if they do like shirts or you know, anything that's going to go around the legs is making sure not only can they walk normally, but it's not rubbing. It's not too tight in the arm area. Um, they need that level of comfort and also be very cautious about capes and dresses and things that are longer, um, especially in the back end, because you certainly do not want your pet tripping over it. That can be, you know, a hurt leg or, you know, a knee blown out, things like that, just because something is not the appropriate length. So always check the length of your costumes if their pet wears them, the, you know, with making sure that they're not too tight, um, making sure that you have adequate control over the dog. So, you do not want to attach a collar to a costume, not something that is not secure that they could slip out of or that can come undone. Please make sure you use your regular, you know, collar, harness, whatever, you know, for walking purposes and make sure that whatever costume you get, you can use your leash and collar or harness or however to walk them with, you know, with that costume to make sure that, you know, they can, they can get around comfortably. Also, um, some of the, Vest, you'd be cautious of too, because the ones that just, you know, Velcro around the neck, Velcro around the chest area, if they're not sized correctly, they can slide when the pet is walking. And when you get them, you know, sliding, then it becomes a, you know, uncomfortable issue as well for the pets at times. So making sure your pet's comfort is, you know, number one, making sure there's nothing blocking his eyesight, you know, mask, things like that. Also be cautious. A lot of people get those you know, frilly elastic collars with the pom-poms on it and stuff, which is okay, but it shouldn't be left on for a long period of time. It needs to be adequately sized. If you have a pet that's walking around the neighborhood with something additional, you know, on its neck, that's going to, you know, that can cause airway constriction. They're not breathing as easily. And when they're out walking around, they have to pant to kind of expel that heat um, make sure you bring water with you, things of that nature. But just be careful in regards to the fit and the constraints that it has on your pet to make sure that your pet's comfortable. Because if they're comfortable, they're going to be happy and then it's going to be enjoyable for everybody. That's so important. And like with my dogs, out of my three, I have two that I can dress up. My third one, it's a nudist. But we put a bandana on her. So those that's such great information, such great tips um, so that the listeners out there, no matter what your dog uh, has as a personality, if they love to dress up or if they don't dress up, Monica, you gave us great information. And I think that everyone's going to be happy this Halloween. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful and safe holiday. Hi, Doggy Diva Show listeners. Susan Marie here to take just a half a minute to let you know how much we appreciate your being with us every week to hear great dog tips you can use with your pet, some great stories about rescues, fostering, and some heartwarming stories about second chances for pets who are now in loving forever homes. Be sure to go to our website, thedoggydiva.com, to see pictures of Miss Olive and other dogs we talk about on the show and get to know us a little better. That's thedoggydiva.com, D-O-G-G-Y. 
We appreciate your feedback, too. Okay, let's get back to the show. Up next, what adopting a rescue dog can teach us. Stay tuned. They called it elephant skin. It was rough, wrinkly, like a Brillo pad. His hair was falling out in clumps. Petey stopped eating and all his hair fell out. Our golden retriever, Sundance, he scratched incessantly. There was hair all over. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 859-428-1000. The omega-3 fatty acids. Flaxseed, zinc, alfalfa. The digestive enzymes that are cooked out of regular dog food. Dynavite is nutrition. Within two weeks, the shedding slowed down to almost none. The scratching went away after a few days and... Sundance's coat was starting to get shiny and glossy. It's a 180 turnaround. His skin has cleared up. He is not in pain. If your dog has shedding, dry skin, excessive scratching due to Dynavite. 859-428-1000. 859-428-1000. Dynavite for life. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E oh. dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back, everyone. In the follow-up to his New York Times bestseller, Rescue Road, acclaimed author and journalist Peter Zutlin brings us a heartwarming, humorous, and inspirational new book, into the world of rescue dogs with his latest book, Rescued, What Second Chance Dogs Teach Us About Living with Purpose, Loving with Abandon, and Finding Joy in the Little Things. Welcome, Peter. How are you? I'm well, Susan. Thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Now, I have to tell you, your first book that I read was Rescue Road, and in it you introduced the readers to Greg of the Rescue Road trips, and I really learned that it I've been in rescue for years, but I really learned how it takes a village to do this entire process because he brings them from the south up north. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Sure. You know, when we adopt a rescue dog, most of us will not have any idea of the number of people who had to lay hands and send their hearts to the dog that's walking in our door. You know, it may, for example, just the person you may meet is the person you mentioned, Greg Maley, of Rescue Road Trips, who hands that dog to us somewhere in New England. But what we don't see are the people who had to walk the shelters, foster these dogs, bring them to veterinarians, help socialize them, and then all the people along Greg's route as he drives north from Louisiana and Texas who meet the truck to give him a hand and and get these dogs out for their walks and, you know, just to give them a little bit of love along the way. So that that book, Rescue Road, was really an attempt to understand the entire rescue process better because we adopted our first rescue dog in 2012, and I didn't even know why we were getting a dog that was coming all the way up from Louisiana. So it was my attempt to understand uh, how Albie actually ended up coming to, uh, to live in our home. Well, and, you know, I wanted to ask about that because I I know your wife, Judy, she wanted a dog for years, but you kind of resisted it. And (laughs) your first dog that you got actually, 
you know, and you picked a rescue dog. You didn't go to a breeder. You What made you right. go, I guess, about it in this way and wait so long? Well, as you mentioned, my wife, Judy, has always wanted a dog. And my <laughs> kids wanted a dog. I was used, um, you know, because I just thought it was going to be too much responsibility. And living in New England, I was going to be the one walking over sheets of ice in February <laughs> so a dog could do it. <laughs> business um and when our younger son was about to go off to college that, that a year before i looked over the horizon and i saw this empty nest and i saw like i wasn't ready for the house to be empty and when judy first su- suggested that and once i agreed to get a dog once she suggested that we consider a rescue dog i literally the image that popped into my mind was a saint bernard in the alps with a whiskey barrel that's what i thought a rescue dog was um and then I you know, quickly learned that these were, you know, dogs that had been neglected, abused, abandoned, runaways, strays, throwaways that were languishing in these high-kill shelters down south, mostly. And I've always been predisposed towards underdogs, so to speak, in the general sense. And so it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, and especially when you learn that there are, you know, close to 700,000 dogs being euthanized in the United States every year, and then you look at these sweet dogs that very easily could have been one of those statistics, There's, you know, why would you not go that route and get a rescue dog? Absolutely. Can you tell us, I guess, in your opinion, why so many rescue dogs come up from the south to the north? And I mean, and in your book, you even cover the Caribbean. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm asked that question at almost every book talk that I give, and I try to address it in in Rescue Road in particular, it's complicated. I would say that, you know, to put it in very general terms and at the risk of, I don't want to paint everyone with a broad brush, but in parts of the South, it's more of a, it's more of a way of living with dogs. Um, I met a lot of people down South who love their dogs, but their dogs live outdoors. You know, they're yard dogs. Um, they're, they're free to wander. Um, there's not a strong spay-neuter culture in parts of the South. So, up north, where I live in New England, if you had gone to the shelters 50 years ago, they would have been filled with local dogs. Um, now, because we've done, I think, a good job of educating about the importance of spay and neuter, um, those same shelters are bringing dogs up from the south for adoption here in the northeast. Um, again, it's a complicated problem. There are a lot of factors that play into it, but just to give people a sense of the scale of the problem, in the city of Houston alone, there are over a million stray dogs. These are dogs that are not owned by anyone. They, they're dogs that just live on the street. And as you mentioned, it's, it's not just a problem here. It's a problem in many parts of the world, um, including our, you know, the neighboring uh, Caribbean islands in the United States. So, you know, you walk around the Northeast and meet people with dogs, and it seems like eight out of ten are dogs that either come from Alabama or Texas, Louisiana or Puerto Rico. Um, it's an enormous problem. And it is. And one of the things you touched on in your book, you, you, in, in talking about the Caribbean, there was a, like a young girl who, yes. I, ah, that was like so inspiring. She was an amazing young girl. Her name is Keegan, and her last name is Sparhawk. And I met her when she and her dad came to hear me give a talk about Rescue Road at a local library. And when I had kids show up for these talks, I always made a point of talking to their parents and to them first because... I wasn't going to show them any gruesome pictures, um, but I did want them to know that part of the talk would involve some pretty tough stuff about the way dogs are treated in the South and the circumstances under which many of these dogs 
struggle to survive and, and how many of them end up dying. And she stunned me because she said, number one, she already read my book. Mm-hmm. She was eight years old, but she also read widely other dog books. And she, on a trip to the Bahamas, had become involved in uh, trying to help rescue what are called pot cakes. These are dogs that are common in um, Turks and Caicos Islands and the Bahamas. And she started at the age of six or seven raising money to donate to local rescues, including one in the Bahamas, for which she has now raised over $10,000. And she, you know, and I ended up interviewing her for the second book. She has seven rescue dogs of her own, but she said something very wise to me. Um, She said, you know, when you, when you buy a dog from a breeder, it's just a random dog. She said, it's not in danger. But these dogs, these rescue dogs on the streets, their, you know, their lives are at stake. Um, and, you know, that to me just crystallized, you know, all the reasons people should strongly consider rescuing a dog and not buying a dog. Because if you don't step up, that beautiful dog that you pass by may very well perish, <laughs> you know, within a matter of days because it, it's, it's time has run out um, in one of these shelters. Absolutely. And and she was very inspiring. I'm so glad that you wrote about that. And also, one of the things you say in your book is, is you know, it's not a cliched book, who rescued who. But how do you view the dog owner relationship? And like, do you consider yourself to be a pet parent? You know, that's a complicated question. Because when, when before we had dogs of our own, and I would hear other people talk to their dogs and say, oh, you know, daddy wants you to do this, or you know, come to mommy. I used to think it sounded, it sounded kind of daft. And, you know, once Albie came into our home, I, I struggled with how to refer to myself in relationship to him. Now, I've never called myself daddy. Um, I, I struggled with whether to refer to my wife as his mommy. Um, I, that doesn't come naturally to me. If it comes naturally to you, you should do it by all means, because it is very much a dependent relationship and these dogs are sort of perpetual, you know, children and um I understand that I just caution people not to slip into over humanizing their dog, over anthropomorphizing their dog, because you have to let the dog live its life as a dog and indulge its its dogginess and don't set up expectations for behavior that are, you know, the kind of expectations you would set up for a human child. Um, you know, I, I say to people, a dog does have to learn how to live with you. A dog has to learn to live in your house. But first and foremost, it's your responsibility to learn how to live with a dog. And, you know, that means not, that means being patient and, and understanding that dogs will do things, you know, just that come naturally to them that we may find a little bit tough to take. I mean, I have had to try and rescue baby bunnies from the maw of, you know, my lovable yellow lab. It, it's not, pleasant, I don't, you know, admonish him for it. He's just doing what dogs do. And, um, you know, I just, I don't see myself as their parent. I guess I just see myself as their protector. Um, you know, we, we have three rescue dogs now, and we don't know what misfortunes, you know, fell into their lives before they came to us. But whatever they were, I feel like it's our job to set their world right. Um, and I think that's what makes the relationship with a rescue dog, all the more rich and all the more poignant. You, know, you can have a wonderful relationship with any dog, wherever it comes from, a breeder, a pet store. But there's something about living with a dog whose life you helped to save that just, you know, is very, very deeply gratifying. 
and, and that's true. And and in your book, you're really clear, which I'm really happy because sometimes people adopt pets expecting their dog. Oh, my dog is going to play frisbee with me. My dog will love running in the park with me. My dog, will, and th- it's generic expectations. Yes, and but it's they're dogs and they all have their own different personalities. And you got into that in your book, which I really appreciated because yeah. sometimes dogs go back to shelters or to rescues because of the expectations of the parents. I think you absolutely nailed it. I think that's the, the biggest cause of unsuccessful adoptions mm-hmm. is unrealistic expectations on the part of the adopter. And every dog, you know, we have three, they are three totally different personalities and dogs, just like people, will come, and, and again, wherever they come from, you know, they may have certain anxieties, they may have certain fears, and it's part of the, it's part of the package that we learn to live with them and help try them, help them try to overcome these fears and anxieties, uh, and not, you know, not go into it thinking of, you know, that fluffy golden retriever puppy running through, you know, waves of grain as if every moment's going to be a perfect hallmark moment. Um, you know, there are all these struggles um, with, with anybody that comes into your house. You know, your children don't come with guarantees either. And yet you, you love them unconditionally. And the same should be true um, when you bring a, a dog into your home. And keep in mind that, you know, these rescue dogs, first of all, they are not damaged goods. They are not, uh, you know, second-class citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, but they will have had experiences that may make them you know, anxious uh, or nervous, and most of them will overcome them with a little bit of patience and a lot of compassion. And, you know, in your book, you also talk about, and when you talk to different uh, pet um, owners that had rescue pets, you did talk about the fact that they all come in with their own personalities or and, and it's really you know sometimes people want to know well what happened to them where were they and especially under you know the situation where you adopted albie you don't necessarily know what the the very beginning was or other people who i know was my rescues i don't know a hundred percent of of why they're the way they are or what their conditions are but you just sort of have to unconditionally love them when they unconditionally love you back you were pretty clear on that in the book which i appreciated also yeah, we, you know, we, we didn't know uh, really anything about Albie's past except that he was found as a stray mm-hmm. in rural Louisiana and then was lucky to survive five months in a high kill shelter where nine out of ten dogs are euthanized um, thanks to a volunteer there that took a shine to him and you know, kept you know, getting a stay of execution for him. And, uh, but, you know, in some ways it was, it was that mystery of his life before he came to us that, that bound us more tightly to him. You know, as I said, we just, we didn't know what wrongs had, had, had fallen into his life, but we just, you know, giving him that safety and security, mm-hmm. um, that had, and peace that had eluded him before just made it all the more, you know, meaningful for us to, to, to give him a home. Now, in in your book, you also, you describe actually some really beautiful stories of service dogs, therapy dogs, emotional support dogs. Um, Can you tell us kind of like the emotional and spiritual support that these dogs provide for the people who love them? Yeah, you know, there are some stories in the book with people who have, you know, trained service dogs, for example, um, or have rescued a dog and then gone through the training to make that dog a certified therapy dog and pay visits to, you know, elementary school classrooms and nursing homes 
and assisted living facilities. And those are dogs that are, you know, very highly trained to provide um, support to people um, who need it. Um, and, for example, there's one woman in the book, Ellen Lee, who's wheelchair-bound, and her, her service dog has just opened up her life in so many ways. Um, it gives her a sense of purpose to take care of Ricky, that's his, uh, her service dog's name, um, but it also is, a, you know, wherever she goes, when she goes for her medical visits or out to the grocery store, Ricky is a conversation starter. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, just expanded her, her social life. Um, but those are, you know, dogs trained for that purpose. But my sense is that every dog at some level is a therapy dog because these dogs, especially rescue dogs, who may have difficult tasks, once they settle into our homes, they're not dwelling on the past, and they're not making plans and worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. They're very much creatures that live in the moment, and I think most of us struggle um, throughout our lives to be more mindful and to be more in the moment and to, to be a little less um, filled with, you know, regret about the past or worry about tomorrow. And I think dogs, you know, draw us more into their moment when we're with them. Uh, and in that sense, I think... They provide all of their companions with, with a form of therapy. We don't think of it that way, but, you know, I think just taking Abby for a walk in the woods just has a way of, you know, calming me down and, um, you know, making me focus a little bit more on the moment that, that we're sharing together. Um, so in that sense, I, I think every dog has the potential to be therapeutic for the people who live with it. Oh, I agree with that 100%. And, you know, in your book, you shared really inspiring stories, and I and some of them made me laugh. Some of them, you know, kind of brought a tear to my eye, but they were all so genuine. And, and I, I have to tell you one thing. You had talked about Albie, and no matter what size, you know, you got him. He's a, a sizable dog, and you'd bought him a bed that would be his size, and he would keep going to the smaller dog's beds. I I was smiling when I read that because we had a greyhound. We could never figure out why she did it, but we also had a cat, and we had a few greyhounds, and they had those big beds, you know, like you get a dog, the bed the size that they're supposed to fit in. My greyhound, who was a big greyhound, would try to circle and fit in that little cat bed, and when I read your book, you said Albie would go to the smaller bed. It's like we can't figure out why they do what they do, but it really brings a smile to our face because they do it over and over, so it makes them happy. Well, you know, speaking of beds, I just would share one story about Albie because I think this is something anybody who adopts a rescue dog should be alert for. And that's the moment in after they come to you when they are telling you that they now identify your home as their own. Absolutely. So, so Albie slept under the coffee table in the living room for five weeks. We didn't know why. And he wouldn't come upstairs when he first came to our house. And I have vowed that we weren't going to sleep in bed with a dog. But after he'd been with us about five weeks, one night I came upstairs and he had made himself comfortable in our bed. And I think that was his way of telling us he finally felt secure enough, safe enough to take this, what I call his leap of faith, um, into our bed. And needless to say, I looked at him and I just melted and my objections to sleeping in dog in the bed disappeared. Um, but it's, it's, it can be a very special moment in the life of the rescue dog. So if you do adopt a rescue dog, be attuned to that. Some of them will bound into your house and make themselves comfortable in five minutes. Some will take longer, but it can be a very precious moment, um, you know, if you can identify it. 
I know when we adopted um, my little Italian greyhound, Miss Olive, she was from a situation, we are not 100% sure, but we know that it, it wasn't good. She wouldn't cross through dog th through thresholds of at the house. We'd literally have to carry her. And then the day that she finally did went through the threshold herself, and it was quite a few months, it was like that big hallelujah moment. So you talk about the homecoming moments. I, it, 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 there's just that moment when you know, oh my gosh, they're home. They're okay. Yeah. They understand because it doesn't happen within the first day. It may not happen in the first week. It may not even happen in the first month. And, you yeah. know, I, I, I appreciated your saying that because that also made me think of what we went through with, with Olive. Now, you know, we've talked a little bit about your dogs, but you have Albie, who came from uh, Louisiana, um, yep. and then you have two other rescues also. So can we just talk a little bit about them? Yeah. The second rescue dog we have, Selena, was actually a dog that I met when I was riding on Greg Maley's truck uh, doing my research for the last book, Rescue Road. She was the puppy, and she was part of a litter that was born to a dog that belonged to a young man in rural Louisiana, a terrific young kid, who really saved the lives of the entire litter because his dad said, look, we can't afford all these puppies. You've got to take them to the pound. And this young man, C.J. Nash, knew that that was going to be a virtual death sentence. So he reached out to a friend's mom who he knew was involved in rescue work and saved the entire litter. And there was something, this dog, her name is Selena, and she was on the transport and she was very scared. She was extremely beautiful, and I just took a special liking to her. And, um, some nights when she couldn't settle down and sleep like the other dogs, I sat in the, in the back of the truck, and this is a big trailer truck, uh, with Selena uh, all night long in my arms. And by the time we got north, and she was going to an adoption event in Rhode Island, we decided we couldn't bear to see her go off uh, with anyone else. Um, the third dog, uh, Jambalaya, uh, also from Louisiana, she came to us when she was about a year and a half, and she's already had a litter of puppies. And she, her owner surrendered her. He, he, he was caught in a flood, and he told the neighbor he was going to have to shoot the dogs, and the neighbor pleaded with him not to, and she took the dogs and got them into a rescue uh, situation. And so um, that's how Jambalaya ended up being a rescue dog, and she came to us a little over a year ago. So. We're now outnumbered. It's, you know, it's um, sometimes it seems like a lot of work, but you know, the joy just outweighs you know any of the extra work that you have to do. And you know, truth be told, having three isn't that much more work than having two. So the way you describe it, it, it it's it's so simple to you know whether you have one, whether you have two, whether you have three. And I mean, there are some people in your books who have a number of them which is just rescue and, and you just, you kind of decipher between the rescuer and the hoarder and, and it's, that's very important well, too. I'm so glad that you brought that up in your book also. Um, yeah, that's an important point. I would just say that, you know, as long as, you know, some people say, look at somebody who may have six, seven, eight dogs and mm -hmm. think they're hoarding. And they may be if those dogs aren't being well cared for and they don't have the resources or the attention to take, make sure those dogs are living great lives. A woman I interviewed for the book in southern Vermont, Adrian Finney, who's got a pack of about 10 labs. She was on a beautiful farm, you know, many acres of land. And as she said to me, every one of these dogs lives with me as if it were the only dog. I mean, they get their veterinary care, they're exercised, they're well-fed, they're a very happy crew. So that, to me, is not a hoarding situation. Those dogs are very healthy, 
and well cared for. So, um, you know, but don't, you know, people need to be realistic too. Don't, you know, try not to take on more than you can realistically handle. Absolutely. And that's the advice I give to people, anybody looking to adopt a rescue dog. You know, if you work all day and you're not going to be home and you're going to get a young, energetic dog, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Um, and you want a dog that's going to, you know, fit into your lifestyle or you're going to have to be prepared to change your lifestyle. Um, but, you know, go into it with a lot of thought. And that's so important. And um, it, you brought up some, and I did enjoy that woman's story, the one, the woman in Vermont, um, because she did. It was like no matter whether she had one or she had ten, they were all, she treated them all individually. And, um, and, I, and, and I enjoyed reading about her also. Um, you know, uh, Peter, I, I do want to thank you um, for all the work that you do and, and what you've brought to attention about the rescue dogs on Rescue Road and now in your second in your book, Rescued, and for sharing so many wonderful stories. I mean, I think that it's important for people who are looking to adopt or people who, you know, who are looking to foster. It's really important to read a book like yours because it tells exactly kind of like what it's about, what the expectations to have, and they're realistic. And I appreciated that a lot. So, well, thank you so much. I mean, I just, I, I think that's, I just feel like I'm preaching the gospel of, mm. of rescue because I really believe that people should at least strongly consider going that route if they're getting a dog. Well, and I wanted to bring up one uh, quote, if you don't mind, in your book. It says, the lessons that rescue dogs can teach us uh, go beyond simply improving our interactions with them. They touch us in far deeper ways that can change our human relationships, our habits, and our mindsets, and our lives for the better. So I think that kind of like when I read that, it kind of summed up a lot of, of... not only what your book was about, but for those of us that are in rescue, how we feel. So I, I hope you don't mind that I brought that quote up, but I thought it was very important. Thank you. No, I appreciate it. I want to thank you for coming on the show today. It was uh, really great to talk to you, and we truly appreciate it. And please, everyone, you're going to want to read this book. It's called Rescued, and it's by Peter Zutlin. And, again, thank you again for coming on the show. We appreciate it so much. That was my pleasure. Thanks so much, Susan. Thank you. We would like to thank our guests this week. And also, as our doggy divas always say, please love your pets because they love you unconditionally. And please remember to adopt, foster, spay, neuter, and microchip. And as always, please have a great Diva Week, everyone. That's all for this episode of the Doggy Diva Show. To find out more, go to our website, thedoggydiva.com. Also, find us on our Facebook page, the Doggy Diva Show, and tell your fellow dog lovers about it. Don't miss Susan Marie, Miss Olive, and the Doggy Divas right here for the next episode. See you again soon. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.